from Troy Public Radio and Troy University in partnership with the Alabama World Affairs Council. This is Speaking Globally, and I'm Walter Gavane. Welcome back to Speaking Globally, where we look at the history, politics, and culture of different regions and countries around the world and talk with people who can provide context and insight into some of the most important issues we face. Earlier this year, when Russia mounted a large-scale invasion of Ukraine, much of the world's attention was drawn to the Ukrainian armed forces. This included female soldiers, some of whom were the focus of a story broadcast in April on The Voice of America. Yerena Chernohus has been a combat medic with the armed forces of Ukraine for the past two years. I joined the army partially because I've always wanted to do it. But I couldn't join in 2014 because I gave birth on April 14, 2014, right when it all started. In January 2020, it so happened that my boyfriend, who served in the army, died on sight. So I decided to join in his memory. My guest has studied women who are in similar situations to the one in Ukraine. Professor Alexis Henshaw has written extensively about women in insurgencies and civil wars. Henshaw is the author of Why Women Rebel, Understanding Women's Participation in Armed Rebel Groups, and co-author of Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars. She has authored reports for the U.S. Army's Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute and the Center for Women, Peace, and Security at the London School of Economics. Henshaw is also an associate fellow with the Global Network on Extremism and Technology and has consulted with UN Women, the UN Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, and a variety of other organizations. She is currently an assistant professor at Troy University in the Political Science Department. In April of 2022, Dr. Henshaw joined me in the Troy Public Radio studio for a wide-ranging conversation about women in military conflicts around the world. Dr. Henshaw, welcome to Speaking Globally. Thank you for being my guest today. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Henshaw, you've really gotten into an area that I think is fascinating, uh, partly because I lived uh, some of these issues in my military career of 33 years, which saw us go all the way from women pilots uh, being part of the Air Force again to women in combat. Now, your focus has been more on women in insurgencies and civil wars. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And what, what really drew you to this topic? Well, around the time that I was doing uh, research in graduate school, we had, um, you know, a conflict with ISIS that was really, you know, emerging in the Middle East. Um, we also had, of course, uh, situations in Afghanistan where there were a lot of relationships to gender. Um, and also because I had studied Latin America, um, there was also civil conflict in Colombia. And one of the things that I noted coming out of all of these different conflicts was that you kept seeing a lot of talk about the role of women in these conflicts. And yet it was always presented as if it was something new or surprising, even though it was an issue that was coming up over and over again. So I sort of started getting really interested in kind of seeing what the history of this phenomenon was, just how widespread is it that you see women in insurgencies, 
And why might it be that we see women are so much more visible in some of these movements than in others? Uh, could you provide an example of that, one where women are more visible? Sure. I mean, in, in the conflict in Colombia, as I mentioned, um, it was one of the cases that we uh, profiled in the 2019 book that I co-authored. Um, that was a, a situation where you saw and have still seen that women are tremendously involved. So there have been, over time, multiple different armed groups, um, a lot of them on the left of the political spectrum, but also some on the right. And they have all included women to a tremendous degree. Um, and so around 2016, when the government of Colombia was negotiating and trying to implement a peace agreement with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the FARC, which was the most visible and probably largest of those insurgent groups, and that organization was 30 to 40 percent women. And you had women highly involved in a lot of visible positions, including negotiating the peace agreement. Now, you get to the negotiating the peace agreement, and, and I think that's something that a, a lot of people really don't focus on, that there's uh, wars eventually end somewhere. We, we hope they end in a negotiated peace sooner rather than later. What did you find when you looked at the role of women in these negotiations? Yeah, so Colombia was a really interesting case because peace processes there had been kind of on and off for a number of years. But one of the things that was consistent was that there was a big movement towards wanting to include more women directly in the negotiation. And that push was really coming from multiple sides. On the one side, within the FARC itself, you certainly had a lot of women who were in visible positions in the movement. But you also had a very strong civil society contingent within Colombia, so a lot of pro-peace groups that were made up primarily of women that also wanted to see more women included directly in the peace process. And at the international level as well, Norway and the United Nations were involved in putting together the peace talks. And they also were you know, really trying to advocate at the international level to see more women included in peace talks broadly anywhere in the world. And so Colombia was a really important test case for that. It's been called a, a historic peace process for the degree to which it included women. You had a gender subcommission within the peace talks that was made up of representatives, women primarily from the FARC and also from the Colombian government, who were in charge of looking over portions of the peace agreement and trying to really just anticipate what issues women might face. So, for example, land rights or land redistribution was a, a part of the peace process. And so trying to just think about or anticipate things like what barriers might there be to including women in a program like this. We're going to demobilize combatants and include them in some educational programs. How do we make sure we're giving women an equal opportunity? And that was something that hadn't been done to that extent before in peace talks. Did you see, as a result of this enhanced role of women in peace negotiations, any specific outcomes that you could identify that maybe would not have been achieved without women? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I would point to a couple of things. One is that we do have women in national politics in Colombia now who were former members of the FARC who went through the demobilization process, who actually took part in negotiating the peace agreement and now hold office at the national level. The flip side to that, unfortunately, has been that we have sometimes seen things not be implemented in the way that they should, despite the fact that there was a lot of advocacy by women 
for improving the process to begin with. Unfortunately, things like the COVID-19 pandemic have really, you know, hindered action on things like trying to deal with domestic violence in the country, trying to give people jobs and educational opportunities. So there have been some, I would say, probably unanticipated barriers that have been encountered as well. Let's go back to actual armed combat Mm -hmm. and what we see there. Obviously, your focus is more on insurgencies and and civil wars. Have you seen any uh, trends in terms of enhanced participation in combat operations or the reverse? I would say, you know, one of the things that was really surprising to me, I think, was that when I tried to look historically at at sort of the trajectory, and I I maybe went into it thinking, okay, if I look at insurgencies over the past 20 to 30 years, the expectation was maybe that I would see an increasing trend of, of women being involved in direct combat or leadership roles or more visible roles. But what I actually found was the opposite, which is that the level of women's participation actually is high and has consistently been high for the past 20 to 30 years. A lot of it, though, is is in cases that we don't necessarily maybe see or, or talk about as much. So when we have seen something very visible like the conflict in Colombia or like the conflict in Syria, where it has attracted attention that women were so visible in these conflicts, we should maybe kind of keep uh, take it with a grain of salt that, that this is not necessarily entirely new. No, it's not new at all, <laughs> is it, really? Although we see, of, of course, these peaks and valleys and things along the way. Let's go to the issue, obviously, that is front and center uh, these days, which is the war in Ukraine. Have you had a chance to look at uh, the war in Ukraine and women's role in that? Yeah, actually, so I have to give uh, credit here to my uh, my co-author on the, the book that we did in 2019. I co-authored that with Jessica Trisco-Darden uh, and Ora Seckley. And Jessica Trisco-Darden had actually done a chapter for that book that was on women's involvement in conflict, basically in the Donbass uh, region. And so she had actually been looking as early as 2015 at some of these, uh, you know, insurgency movements or militant movements within those kind of breakaway areas of Ukraine and was finding that women were extremely visible. Women were also playing really important roles in propaganda and in recruitment in some of these armed movements. And I really think that in some ways that kind of lays the groundwork for what we're seeing right now. The fact that that women were really trying to kind of sustain these movements and, and trying to develop, grow them maybe be a little bit doing a propaganda effect for them. Yeah, that's interesting is that uh, the communications role, obviously, uh, being a a primary one in that case. What about on the Ukrainian side? Have we uh, seen a substantial role there that you've had a chance to look at? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, And so what she was finding was that women were active kind of on both sides, more pro-Ukrainian and then also more pro-Russian, but just with like a slightly kind of different spin on it. And again, I think that kind of matches some of the narratives that you've seen in the media about the role that disinformation plays in that conflict that, you know, for women who were in or sort of breakaway insurgent movements within the Donbass region, that there was a strong narrative that was not only pro-Russia, but that was also the sense that people who were on that side were being victimized by Ukrainians and and that there was sort of an attempt to try and threaten their culture, right, or threaten their way of life in that region. 
Whereas on the Ukrainian side, you, you saw just kind of the opposite, right? The notion mm -hmm. that, that Ukrainian people were also trying to defend themselves against Russian influence and incursion in their region. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us have been impressed by the Ukrainian uh, communication uh, efforts and the, the way that they've been able to get their message out and stick to a narrative. Uh, have women been uh, substantially involved in that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this was something that I guess frustrated me a little bit about when we first started to see the conflict escalate back in February was that a lot of the sort of international news coverage that was coming out of the area was about the conscription of men of fighting ages into fighting forces in Ukraine, and the fact that a lot of women and, and children were leaving the country as refugees, which to a large extent was true, but I think overshadows the fact that, that many women were fighting and had been fighting in the past and continue to fight for Ukraine as well. As you look more broadly at the picture around the world, we've talked about the Americas. Any other areas that you've really had a chance to focus on that you've been struck by a distinct role that women have played? You know, the three cases that we looked at primarily in the book was we did look at, at women in the Colombian civil conflict. We looked at women in Ukraine. And we also looked at women's roles in the Syrian conflict, which incidentally is, is something that continues to be an issue. So on the one hand, I think it got a lot of media attention at the time that there were women involved in many of these Kurdish armed groups. But we also had women, again, playing that tremendous communications and, and recruitment and propaganda role for the Islamic State. And that's still really an unresolved question, I think, in the international community is what happens to some of those women. Many of them were women who were from European countries or from other parts of the world who specifically traveled to join the Islamic State to be a part of whatever caliphate they were trying to build. But many of them are still there, and countries don't necessarily want to see them repatriated. And so we have a lot of women who are still basically in prison camps in Syria who are former propagandists, right, or, or supporters of the Islamic State. And there is some research that suggests that they have continued to, even within prison camps, play that kind of propaganda role, that they can get a hold of phones, they can somehow get access to the internet. They're using that to try and fundraise, and they're using that to try and create a narrative again that says, look at how we've been forgotten by the international community, and arguing that this is why we need to do things like reconstitute the group. Yeah, that's interesting that I haven't seen a lot of data, but it, you certainly anecdotally see a lot of information about women's role in these terrorist organizations, uh, particularly Islamic State. We talk in sort of the broad trends and that sort of thing, but I, I think what really seizes people's imagination often are the particular stories. Are there any particular individual stories that you think are highly illustrative of, of a, some of the things you're talking about? I guess I can talk a little bit about the, the woman that I mentioned before, the one I was most specifically thinking of, who was Victoria Sandino Palmera, who was a member of the FARC for years in Colombia. She is now a senator within Colombia, uh, and that was through her involvement in the peace accord. And so one of the interesting things, and, and she and others who were involved directly in the negotiations, have since come out and started sharing a little bit of, of memoirs and, and notes about their experiences in negotiating. One of the things that kind of stands out is that she was a leader in the FARC, but not necessarily a super 
high-level leader, right? Not necessarily leading at, at the national level. But she was included in the peace process largely through that advocacy from peace groups and from the international community that they wanted to see more women represented in this process. And so she's talked a little bit about the fact that it was really interesting to her as someone who maybe was from a more rural background, who had been fighting with this insurgent movement for a long time, to come to that negotiation and to actually be able to participate in a negotiation with other women who were representing the Colombian government and the Colombian military, and to find that they had had a lot of the same experiences, and to find that they faced a lot of the same issues and were concerned about a lot of the same issues in Colombian society. And so it really stands out that now she is a part of that political process. She's been using her position to advocate not only for more attention to implementation of the peace accords, but also to talk about things like domestic violence within the country, which is one of those common issues that I think women of different factions found through the peace process. Well, let's bring it home to the United States. Again, as I mentioned at the outset, I've had a front row seat for 33 years in the Air Force of uh, watching closely as women's roles continued to evolve and expand to include combat roles. What have you seen as you've looked at this? You've had a chance to really uh, get a sense. And and, and let's not talk just, I I mentioned combat roles, so it's sounding more like, you know, forces. But certainly with uh, four tours in Washington, D.C., I also saw women playing uh, highly prominent roles in terms of the civilian side of thing, in fact, I was uh, had the great privilege to be a military assistant to the first female secretary of the Air Force, Dr. Sheila Widnell. Uh, any observations you'd like to share on that? Yeah, so I'm actually working on a, a new research project right now. The first piece of that came out in January, but it's looking specifically at how the United States is implementing a 2017 law called the Women, Peace, and Security Act. What that act did was it created new mandates for the Department of State, the Department of Defense, USAID, and the Department of Homeland Security, that they all had to do more to show that they were promoting the inclusion of women, but also that they were investigating the gendered impacts that their own policies might have. So, for example, if they're supporting diplomatic initiatives or military operations somewhere else in the world, there are new mandates that they have to look at what the impact potentially is on of those policies on women in those areas. And so I spent a couple of years going back and forth to Washington, D.C., but also to some other areas and talking specifically to officials who were in, within the State Department, the Defense Department, and USAID about how they interpreted that policy and how they were implementing it. And some really interesting things came out of those interviews. There's certainly a lot of, of will within the United States to really implement that in a meaningful way, especially you know looking at our past involvement in places like Afghanistan and the impacts that that has had for women and on women. There's really a a lot of motivation to kind of take these issues more seriously, but we're still at the very beginning of an implementation process. So even though that law was placed about five years ago, the wheels of government run kind of slowly. And and so we're just starting to see it really being institutionalized more. So I think that hopefully within the next few years, we might see some exciting movements in that direction. Is there any one country that you would point to particularly as a model or an an ideal, ideal may be too strong a word, but but really has sort of done things right and uh, has something to show for it? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when I talk to a lot of my interviewees, especially within the Defense Department, one of the big answers that I got was that they felt Nordic countries, especially, you know, Sweden and Norway, were really far ahead of the United States in terms of integrating women into various different roles in armed forces, including women more comprehensively in their training, and also making sure that everyone was aware of and accountable for their equivalent of policies on women, peace, and security, meaning looking at what impacts their involvements abroad might have on women. The other answer that I got a lot is that NATO is actually ahead of the United States on some of these. And so there's actually some history there that even going back a few decades, uh, you know, NATO has had bodies dedicated to looking at the status of women in NATO militaries when these women, peace, and security policies started to kind of emerge around the world in the early 2000s. NATO was one of the early leaders in trying to pick this up and and institutionalize it. So creating, for example, positions for gender advisors who are just embedded in different areas to examine and possibly study the impact of policy outcomes on women or military operations on women. And so those were, I think, the most frequently cited examples. Canada is another one that comes up a lot in terms of countries that have potentially done better at uh, you know, creating uh, policies to support women's inclusion in both the military and also in diplomatic positions as well, because we see that women continue to be underrepresented in the diplomatic sphere, too, in terms of high-level ambassador appointments or anything like that. I was the senior military official at the State Department in one of my last assignments, which was a great education for me uh, to be able to work. And I was actually working in the State Department uh, and saw firsthand how important a role uh, female diplomats were uh, playing in in that particular area. But also, too, that uh, I think you've always thought, well, this is a great area. Uh, If you look at it versus, you know, the population, yeah, there, there certainly could be more. Let's move now to the Middle East, really, and um, what's going on in Yemen. And I understand that you've uh, been doing a little bit of research on the the role of women in that conflict. Yeah, so that's a very interesting example of sort of an ongoing conflict where they have been trying to include more women more directly in the peace process, but have really run up against these kind of uh, social norms that prevent women from engaging in public life. And one really interesting case study that I think shows the way that technology can possibly support uh, the more direct involvement of women in peace processes is that uh, going into the COVID-19 pandemic, the United Nations had already been planning to conduct some public dialogues online surrounding the peace process in Yemen. And they actually, you know, again, given the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that a lot of people couldn't travel, they moved a lot of that online. They were able to use um, technology to promote the real-time involvement of people from all throughout the country. But they also were able to use artificial intelligence to translate amongst different regional dialects so that the people who were participating in the talk could converse with each other. And the fact that it was online was primarily seen as as a benefit because of the COVID pandemic, because people maybe couldn't travel and, and attend in person. But what they actually found was that when they put it online, they had much more success uh, having women involved. And so I want to say that the, the person I spoke to about this told me that they had approximately 30 percent women participating in the public discussion, which was a significant 
advance above what they had previously had when they may have been holding some of these conversations in person. And so there's been a lot of talk about how to kind of build on that momentum. How do we keep it so that we you know, can maintain that high level of women's participation so that we're able to hear from women about their own perspectives so that everybody who's also participating in these public forums can also hear about how the conflict is affecting women in the country. And then you know, maybe that also helps them kind of get around some of the social norms or restrictions that have prevented women from participating in the past. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, You know, that was always a challenge, engaging in the Middle East, just respecting the cultural norms, but still not uh, betraying your own values and identity. Uh, So it's it's fascinating to me that the uh, technology seemed to provide some sort of a an acceptable buffer or that would facilitate uh, the participation. Uh, Any chance you see that uh, sort of thing uh, happening in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I would say that we we do definitely see that women and, you know, those who support women's rights more broadly have really been trying to use social media and different kind of online platforms to sort of spread awareness or raise awareness of, you know, what's happening in the in Afghanistan, which unfortunately is, is often not uh, not great in terms of progress on women's issues right now. But, you know, we have seen women sort of speaking out about the fact that they have been, you know, denied the opportunity to participate in, in education, contrary to promises that the Taliban, I think, made when they were taking over the country. We've also seen some, you know, very courageous, I think, public protests by women that have been covered on social media. So, you know, technology does have a role to play, I think, in, you know, continuing to to raise awareness of these issues. And again, you know, the fact that this is, the perspective of women is not always the first thing that you hear in reporting on a lot of these stories from different parts of the world. So the fact that we have something like social media that maybe allows for a different perspective to be shown in some kind of way, or that maybe allows some people to communicate, uh, you know, with the international community in a way that they maybe would not have otherwise, I think that that has tremendous potential. Any uh, parting uh, thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, when you're watching the current events that are coming out, when you're seeing, for example, what's unfolding in Ukraine or even what's unfolding in some place like Afghanistan or Syria, we sort of have this saying in political science that, you know, you can ask yourself the question, where are the women? So if you are not immediately seeing women and women's voices represented in some of these stories, it's maybe worth digging a little further. And so I would encourage anyone who is following international affairs, whose interest in any of the specific cases of of conflict or post-conflict issues that are out there right now to just, you know, ask yourself that question once in a while and and maybe dig a little deeper. I like that. Where are the women? Uh, Definitely a question worth asking. Thank you, Dr. Henshaw, for being our guest today on Speaking Globally. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Dr. Alexis Henshaw, an assistant professor in the political science department of Troy University. Henshaw has written extensively about women in civil wars and insurgencies, and more information about her work can be found at alexishenshaw.com. Our podcast is recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio on the Troy University campus and is produced and edited by Kyle Gassett. 
I'm Walter Gavan, and I look forward to talking with you again soon on Speaking Globally.